Gather round cause we're here at Dreamland with none other than Cole Schaefer himself. We're talking about the stuff that stirs your soul and keeps you up late at night. At Dreamland, we sit down with Grammy-winning producers, James Beard award-winning chefs and New York Times best-selling authors as they divulge the processes they've used to turn their dreams into the kind of creative work that's shaping culture as we know it. Buckle up because this is no ordinary show. There will be fire, spilt milk, and more than a few surprises as we discover what it means to be creative at Dreamland. The first time you and I kicked it was actually at Wilburn Tavern. Yeah, I remember. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, you had nachos, which I thought you just ordered nachos out of nowhere. It just seemed like a big kind of like decision. Big play. Well, I don't a big drink. play. I don't drink, so I judge all bars by the quality of the snack food and the food that they have. So I think I showed up, and maybe I was hungry, and I don't know. Maybe I was waiting around, and I, yeah, I decided to give them the nachos a go. All good. Yeah, they were all good. They were as if I was apologizing for the for the nachos. Oh, all good, man. No worries. <laughs> well, I, I just I just I do remember, you know, it, it did seem like a a big move and the nachos were kind of underwhelming, to be honest. I think no, they, they were could, horrible. Yeah, yeah, I think they could work on their nacho game. Yeah. Personally. No, I agree. But I guess to lead this back into you, so you grow up in uh where where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York, just outside of New York City. So I grew up in Westchester, New York, which is a suburb and a really cool place to grow up because when you're growing up in Westchester, everyone always complains about the small town and like, oh, there's nothing to do in Hastings on Hudson. But you can literally walk to the train or the Metro North and be in the city, New York City, in like 30 minutes. So you have access to like one of the greatest cities in the world while still having this small town feel that's right on the Hudson River overlooking the Palisades. So it's beautiful. That's what fascinated me about your upbringing is, I mean, I most of my childhood was living in a smallish town and, you know, you get into your own bullshit and, and, and it's a fun kind of way to grow up. But then right beside you is New York, you know, and I, I'm just curious kind of what effect that had on your creativity. Um, you, okay. When you grow up in New York, first of all, I think you end up loving like whatever bands are like native to wherever you are. So like if you're in Florida, like Jimmy Buffett was your guy, right? Like that's your guy. How many bands do you have? If you live in Florida, probably like, you know, a handful when you're in New York, it's like Billy Joel, the strokes. Like I grew up listening to the strokes and I would take the train to the city every day and listen to all those meet me in the bathroom bands like vampire weekend. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or the Arctic Monkeys. Like these were bands that to me just felt so New York. So first of all, that still has a huge impact. Like welcome to New York, Taylor Swift. I'm like, like she's talking about me. Like that's my hometown. So that alone has a huge impact of just like how much art is about New York. But just the, I don't know, just the, like it's so cliche because we're talking about New York City. But it's like, that's the one of the big things that I miss about Nashville is the museums in New York or in any like, or in even Boston where I went, I went to school in Boston, there's great museums. Like we don't have great museums in Nashville. We have the Frist. We have some amazing music museums, but it's like, if you want to go stare at like ancient Greek, like carvings in marble or whatever, you can see how educated I am at art, but like you can do that in New York. Like that is inspiring the natural history museum. Like this makes you 
this just gives you a whole different output on life. And then you see a lot of theater. And I grew up seeing a ton of theater. And I think that theater is one of the greatest ways to develop empathy because you just have, you can just see so many different types of people telling so many different types of story. And it gives you perspective into so many different types of culture and people and being. And I think that's something that like you take for granted, but I think that being in New York, you're just around so many different types of art and culture and people, and it really opens up your world. I think that might be why New York is always thought of as being like so liberal, but I think that's just because we're just exposed to so much and that has a big impact on, on, uh, on, you know, as you're coming up in the world. Yeah. And your brother's huge in theater. Well, I don't know about that. We're going to plug him on the podcast. I think we on are. The, uh, yeah. He, well, yeah, he, he's a producer in theater, a very successful producer, three-time Tony winning uh, Broadway producer. So, yeah. Yeah. And Crazy. then he, you, you were telling me the, over, uh, over at Soho that he moved to London, which is crazy. Yeah, he moved to London a couple of years ago. He's been producing theater in London. Um, and he produced a couple, um, he had a show called Unfriend that was all in London. And he had another show called, uh, I don't even know, but I've been, it, uh, it was, did really well though, but I've, I've visited him, I've visited him a couple times and we always go and we see theater and super fun. Have you, yeah. have you ever gone? The theater? Yeah. Um, I went to uh, Shucked, which I saw you Oh there. yeah. We ran into each other we at the Shucked opening other. night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That was fun. Really fun. That was a great show. That show was doing really well. Your mom, social worker, right? Your yeah, mom. she's a social worker, or she's therapist, family yeah. therapist. And your dad, your dad is in finance. Yeah, I just retired. You are a badass guitarist, also a podcaster, and then your brother's in theater. It just seemed interesting that they produced such creative kids. Were your parents super creative? Not really. My sister also is a social worker, so she went okay. into the family business, it would seem. Um my parents are definitely great art appreciators, and I felt like they were always very supportive of us being into the arts. So, like, there was always a little bit of budget for if, like, I wanted to buy a CD or, like, a book or, like, anything that was art-related. There was It felt like there was always, like, budget to kind of buy those things that really, you know, encouraged the arts. So they were very encouraging of it, you know, very grateful. I, like, say this all the time that, like, learning how to play an instrument when you're young is such a great thing. Like the slogan for Fender guitars right now is like Fender guitars. You'll never regret learning how to play or whatever. And like, that's so true. And they, you know, were so generous to, you know, pay for all my music lessons and everything. Um, so they were definitely very encouraging, but they didn't really push my brother or myself into the arts at all. It was just what, we just really gravitated towards, but um, it's not like they were like there was they sometimes they'd play music in the house, but like I mean, there was music in the house, but I don't. My dad is the kind of person who listens to like musical wallpaper, like he loves music, but he'll just listen to music to listen to music, like he doesn't really care what he's listening to. Oh, I've never heard that term musical wallpaper, that's funny. Like he'll listen to and he's got a couple bands, he might listen to this and like be like, What are you talking about? Like, I love Dave Matthews, which is like something that I frequently listen to, but like he'll put on the radio and just like listen. And to me, I'm, and he doesn't care like what song, like if it's good, bad. Like I'm like constantly flipping to try to find the best song on the radio or the best thing. Like I want to hear the best possible music that I can listen to at that time. Um, but and my mom plays a little bit of piano. She played piano. She learned how to play piano growing up and has a very like rudimentary piano, but can kind of sit down in front of a piece of sheet music and play play piano. So she has, you know has a little bit of musical talent. But I both of my parents are really not artistic, but. It's interesting that I guess that we both got really into it. It is interesting. And do you do you remember the the song or band that 
made you become obsessed with with guitar or made made you want to become a guitarist? I mean, I played so many instruments before I got to guitar. I played piano when I was in kindergarten, and then because I begged for piano lessons, I really don't know why. And then in uh, third grade, I had the choice to play violin in like my school orchestra, so I started playing violin. And then I started to play saxophone in fourth grade. I played saxophone for years. I was going to guess the clarinet. The clarinet, that's so mean and offensive. (laughs) I come onto your show and you attack me like this. It's unbelievable. So I I played saxophone for years, alto, and then really I just wanted to get laid. And I thought playing guitar would get me laid easier than saxophone. Turns out no no chicks are not into you just because you play guitar. You have to to bring something else to the table. table, And then if you also play guitar, that's a plus. I didn't have anything else. I just played guitar. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, but I played saxophone for years, but I got into guitar, and it was funny because I was really diligent about practicing saxophone, and as soon as I started playing guitar, it was like, stop playing saxophone. My saxophone teacher was like, what's going on? Like, you used to be so, you know, diligent about practicing. I was like, now I'm practicing guitar. Like, couldn't care less about saxophone. But I think it was like early bands. I was definitely part of the guitar hero generation, which sounds crazy, but like, seriously, like, that just turned you on to so many bands and like you would play like Guns N' Roses songs and then you would go listen to Appetite for Destruction or Aerosmith songs and then you go listen to those records and it just exposed you to so much music and to the feeling of playing Guitar Hero, which was really fun and then thinking like, oh my God, like if guitar is half as fun as this, this could be a fun thing and then you find out it's more fun. Um, <laughs> so that, I, you know, that had a big thing and I think a lot of my friends were getting into guitar at the same time, too, like my, one of my next door neighbors got really into guitar and one of my best friends down the street got really into guitar. And we all kind of got into guitar at the same time. I'm the only one who really still plays. And that was always fine to me. Like they were always like, yeah, I love guitar, but I'm going to go study engineering or I'm going to do uh, like something else. I was like, wait, you don't love this the way I love this. Like I can't like that is surprising to me because I thought we were all like playing in bands and like I thought we were all like obsessed with this. And I couldn't picture myself doing anything other than music um, and my friends. We're like, no, like, what are you talking about? I'm going to go work in, like, engineering or finance or whatever. I was like, dude, that is crazy. You can't do that. Like, you know. Yeah, and I mean, and we were we were thumbing through your high school yearbook. and Where did you see, find my high school yearbook? We, I mean, we. Where would you go, my we Facebook? A, we went on a deep dive. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Anyways, but you looked like a guitarist yeah, in high very school. Long hair. Long hair. Yeah. It, either a guitarist or that you <laughs> you were attending Hogwarts. What Both. Actually, Both. that's yeah. the crazy thing. Yeah, I yeah. was a mudblood though. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? Actually, I don't you come actually from non magic parents, right? That's a isn't that a muggle? No, I think a muggle is someone who doesn't have any magic ability, but a mudblood is a is a wizard who comes from non magic parents, or maybe one parent is a magic parent and one's not. Shit! So for all you mudbloods out there, I'm sorry. Don't yeah. don't cancel me. <laughs> Yeah, mud, Don't come for me. Mudblood just sounds like a shitty thing to say. It'd be a good name for a band, though. Mudblood. Mudblood would be. Mudblood, yeah. Yeah, but anyways, when you were attending Hogwarts, uh, you you <laughs> got this uh, award. I think it was the I did the the uh, it's like principals award. Do you remember that? I got to be honest, I'm thrilled to talk about anything. I'm an open book, but I, I don't remember this. Yeah, no, you got the principals leadership award while you were in what? high school. This, was this on my Facebook? How'd you find this? You were the honest truth is like, I will tell you anything. Like I'm not even covering this up. I don't remember that, but now you're bringing back good memories, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, I was, I was curious. Did you, have you felt like that's played out in your adult life? I mean, <laughs> the, 
the leadership award. I'm, I think I'm, this is I'm just, so funny. It just, I'm so it just seemed thrilled very, to hear about where you found this. It just seemed I don't very prestigious this. when we when we saw it. It looked very prestigious <laughs> to receive that award. So I was just curious. You know, you feel like it's no, no, because I don't remember it. I think I'm a good leader, though. I have a team. I'd say I'm a, I, I, a I think leader. I'm a good leader. Yeah, cool. I just cool. lead with transparency. Okay. Yeah. I'm the. I'm trying to remember when I would have gotten this though. It's hilarious. Yeah, I mean it. It and it doesn't sound like something they just give away lightly. <laughs> or maybe they do. You know, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> pretty. The, what was it called? The prestigious. Uh, it was. I want to get it correct here. It was. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Don't screw this one up. It was the Principal's Leadership Award with Rosie Leva or Leva. Now it sounds even less familiar. I don't even know who that uh, is. Was that? No. That's crazy, man. No, you definitely got that award. You I should. was probably high when they gave it to me. Yeah. No, I definitely wasn't. Uh. Yeah, you don't see, do you, do you I, I can't, were you a pothead in high school? No, not really. Yeah. No. Yeah. I was always a pretty straight laced dude. Pretty. Yeah, because you don't drink now. No. Yeah. Have you ever drank? A little bit, but I would never really got that into it, and I stopped drinking because I hate drinking. Really? Yeah. It just, you don't like how it makes you feel? I hate how it makes me feel. I... I like being the sober one at the party. And I also think that people do dumb things when they're drunk that I'm on the receiving end on. Like people will spill wine on me or like my favorite story is like someone once said to me, this is like early when I was like trying to like, not to try and do anything, but when I was like, I think I'm gonna stop drinking. Somebody said to me, they were like, I have to tell you something, but you can't tell my boss. Cause if you tell my boss, I could get fired. And I was like, Oh, right, tell me like, I'm a, I'm a good secret keeper. And she told me. And then the next day she called me crying I said, what happened? She goes, I got really drunk and I told the boss myself. And I was like, that's why I don't drink. <laughs> what was the thing? Now I can't even get into it. It was like four you or five years that. ago. You can't, but you can't. I, you know, to be honest, I think she just like screwed something up at work that she was afraid to admit. Or maybe she, I don't know. Like I genuinely don't remember, I mean, what but she, I remember what this What did she story. do? Was she like stealing, stealing no, office supplies? No, it was like supplies? nothing like that. It was like an innocent mistake or something. But she, but I just think people do dumb things when they drink. And I don't even like drinking. And I hate the taste of alcohol. The okay. way to get me a drink is sometimes in very big groups, you can get me to do a celebratory or a group shot because I like the social element. So the only time I really <laughs> drink is if I'm doing shots. So here's a perfect example. I was downtown, and I'm going to name drop a little bit. And Brad Pitt always tells me not to name drop, but this story is going to name drop a little bit. So I was downtown with Anderson Pack because um, he was DJing the show in Nashville. We interrupt this broadcast to bring to you a message from one of our lovely patrons here at Greenland. One of my favorite writers of all time is Hunter S. Thompson. He was played by Johnny Depp in the book-turned-film Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, the film got a lot of people interested in psychedelics. It also freaked a lot of people out, too. Take the opening line. Suddenly, there was a terrible roar all around us, and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats. Psychedelics, when abused, can be this a scary trip, they can be a sky full of bats, but when taken in sub-hallucinogenic doses, they can enhance your creativity. Schedule 35 is one of the most trusted psilocybin brands among creatives in North America. Now they got micro doses, which is what I like to take when I'm feeling like I'm in a creative rut. If you're into seeing bats, you can use a super dose. Also have the lover's dose if you're feeling frisky. If you say fuck the doses and you just want chocolate, they also got psilocybin chocolate. Today, Schedule 35 is offering Dreamland listeners, that's you, 15% off your first order with discount code DREAMLAND at checkout. If you want to claim that, just head over to schedule35.co 
and use discount code DREAMLAND at checkout. Let's get back to the show. I don't know Anderson, so I don't think he, like I don't like come well, on you, Anderson. You did say you did say I was downtown with Anderson Pack, so I thought that you all were boys. Just by the way you phrased that, that was intentional. But I'm okay. not boys with Anderson Pack. Okay. So we were downtown this DJ set, and afterwards we like we went back into his dressing room to say hi, and he goes, "Let's do a shot." First of all, before he did that, there was a fruit platter on the table, and he started walking around with the fruit platter like feeding us all fruit as manager was like, look at this guy, such a gentleman. I was like, this is absurd. So I took a piece of melon off a plate held by Anderson pack. And then Anderson pack was like, let's do shots. So this whole green room was like doing shots. There was like a waitress who went around with a tray of shots and everybody took a shot. And I was like, well, I'm going to do a shot because I want to be able to come on this podcast and tell the story about how I did a shot with Anderson pack. So if you if in a in a big group setting and it helps if there's famous people involved, you can convince me to do a shot. Outside of that, I really never drink. Who would you get like hammered with? No one, no one. I don't even think there's I'd not s- a single person in the world. That no, if, because if, getting hammered that ha- few few times I've gotten hammered made me feel so sick. Who would I get hammered with? Like I I don't know. Maybe like if Megan Fox said she'd be my wife if I got hammered with her. Like maybe. But like I probably not even that because I feel like that wouldn't be a genuine relationship. Um, sure, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, was what was holding us back. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't know. Probably like sometimes like I don't smoke, uh, and sometimes I genuinely think like if I was sitting down with Willie Nelson, would I smoke? And like I don't know. Like maybe not. Maybe I don't think I would smoke with Willie Nelson. Really? I I'm, I mean I've I've gotten high a handful of times in my life, and every time. I hate it. Yeah, that's how yeah, I, I feel. really, really have never enjoyed it. So why, like, but I would, I feel like I would, there would be like if I'd be inclined to smoke with Willie, but yeah, I don't think I would, and his stuff would probably screw us up anyway. So we had a we had Sean Brock on here, like oh, the chef, the chef. Yeah, yeah. He said he got these cool ass like bookcase speakers that they did the Highway Men like albums. Like they listen to the Highway Men albums on, yeah. like as they're producing them, and he was like, "I've, I, f- I feel like Willie Nelson might have rolled a joint on there or something," which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, that's a guy. You ever go to Audrey, and I think my favorite thing on that menu at Audrey is the, uh, is the, uh, the cornbread that he spent like ten years, dude, making the perfect cornbread. Find it's like this guy needs a life. He's running around finding the perfect <laughs> corn for cornbread, like unbelievable well you know what's even crazier and he doesn't need a life he's an accomplished chef and this is his passion so kudos very, to you sean brock yeah very. and he here's what's even crazier is he's rolling out this this sort of corn chip that uses the same materials for his cornbread called like south or something and it's yeah. going into a bunch of whole mm. foods and shit that to me is interesting because i'm surprised to hear that the perfect corn for cornbread is the same Perfect well, corn for a corn chip. That to me is surprising, but maybe it yeah, is. I, I need to check my facts there, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's it's the same. Yeah, but I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Anyways, are you a big big cornbread guy? No. Okay. Well, you just said that was your favorite dish. Because <laughs> I just think it's a it's amazing that he's been ten years searching for the perfect corn to make the perfect cornbread. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was I just, into that part of it. Yeah, yeah. I just if I said you know one of my favorite dishes at a restaurant was say a steak. 
I would assume that I was like a. I a like big the only if you spent ten years finding the perfect cow for the perfect steak for the perfect cut, how to raise it. Th- then that would be my favorite thing on that menu. Then I'd be into that. When did you become interested in country music, or has it always been? I got something? okay. Nobody in my hometown listened to country music, or even knew like what country music was. I got really into country music because I was a guitar player growing up, and I had a guitar teacher who was randomly a country music fan. And he would play these licks, like these chicken picking country bluegrass licks. And I would be like so into them. Like I'd be like, oh my God, where are those? So he turned me on to Brad Paisley and country guitar players. And that really got me into country music. He got me into country music. And the thing about country music is there aren't that many guitar heroes in country music the way there are in rock music. Like the guitar heroes in country music are the session guys because there's so many solo artists in country music. So it's like you'd have to go track the records. You'd have to track the guitar players through the records. So then you end up listening to like all these Alan Jackson records because you're trying to hear Brent Mason licks or you end up listening to like Emmy Lou Harris records because you're trying to hear like, I don't know who, like Albert Lee or, uh, you know, Don Rich on all the Buck Owens records, like all these session players, like you're tracking the lineage of country music to get to the guitar players. So I, at first I was like, oh, I hate country music, but I'm really into the guitar playing. And then I listened to so much of it that I just started to get into it. And the thing is that even now with the state of like current music, but definitely when I was getting into it, was I was really a rock guy who was into guitars and guitar playing. And country music, even though at, at times, and I still feel this way, that's like hard to relate to the lyrical content at times because I didn't grow up fishing or like I grew up in a small town, but I grew up in a small town like, 20 minutes outside of New York City. So I don't relate to a lot of the small town antics. You weren't a big fisherman. I, I've, I've maybe gone fishing like twice in my life. But what I related to was like the musicality of it, where it's like, especially when I was getting into country music, it was like these bands sound like Aerosmith, like Florida Georgia Line sounds like Aerosmith with like some twang or like some like steel. And people say that, like that's not a revelation to say. Um, but even now, if you listen to like Hardy or Morgan Wallen or I don't know, like some of the, like these are like bands who sound kind of like Nickelback and it's like rocking. So that's what got me really into country music that at the time it was like the only format where you could go see artists in arenas and stadiums playing electric guitars and drums and bass and sounding kind of like rock bands, even if they were a little twangy. Um, So to me, that's what got me into country music. But the thing that's interesting is I remember I used to watch these YouTube videos of George Strait and Garth Brooks and they'd be playing in arenas and stadiums and I would go into school and I'd like talk to my friends about this. I'd be like, do you guys know this guy like George Strait or Garth Brooks? And literally, like, this is so weird to understand, but it's so true that like they had never heard it. Like my friends growing up had never heard of Garth Brooks. Like some of them have still not to this day or George Strait. Mm-hmm. Like they don't know who that was. But then I'd be like, but they're playing in like stadiums and like people are freaking out. So it was like, how is this possible? Um, so I don't know what my point is, but that's how I got into country music was really through the guitar playing I had a guitar teacher in high school who got me really into it. And then I spent a summer in Nashville when I was in college and I got really into Nashville. And you know, Nashville's a special place. It is a special place. We're going to pause there and have a cereal break. I have a follow-up question. Yeah. Do I get to ask you break. some questions too? Maybe. I'll also say this, this segment's generally a lot more exciting. Why, what, is it me that's putting the energy down? What makes it? Well, just your cereal choice. <laughs> Let me get a bite, here we go. 
there was a, an award for like the musician. It, I forget what it was called, but it was like an award that had to do with music. And me and my friend, Justin Sedke, Justin Sedke and I were the two people in the school who were both going to music schools after. And we were the only people in the grade who like were really serious about music. So there was this award for like most musical or whatever. So we're sitting on the stage and we're expecting that like one of us, if not both of us is going to get it. And when they get to that award, they end up giving it to some kid who was like, not that musical, like not even in the orchestra. Like it was like the most random pick ever. So Justine and I started texting the band leader being like, cause we were really friendly with the band leader. Like we had a great relationship with them and we're still friendly with them. And we were texting when we were like, don't put this out or put it in. I don't care. We were texting when we were like, oh my God, like, like how come we didn't get this award? Or like, like we were like, what? Like, how did we not get that award or whatever? And he was like giving us some BS excuse. And then uh, there was a whole ceremony of awards to sit through that didn't have anything to do with us. So I just thought, you know what? I'm going to leave. So I just got up. But the thing is, all the kids were on stage. So I was like, I, I'm just going to leave. So I just got up and left. But as I was walking off the stage, I literally bumped into the principal. Like he was blocking my exit. And I was like, oh, excuse me. I started walking around him and just darted out of the auditorium. That is what I remember. I don't remember getting the award, but maybe I don't remember getting the award. Sounds like you deserve the bad sportsmanship award. We call him Mr. A. <laughs> I might finish that later. Save that. No, get rid of it. That's no, man. That's okay. We have to draw. There's plenty more, man. We're cutting that out. It's <laughs> good. If people find out that you save wet cereal, like soggy cereal, and dig in later. Huge red flag. That's a huge red flag. Here's what I want to talk about. Do you about. like porridge? Here's what I want to talk about during the cereal break, but I couldn't because my mouth was full of cereal. First of all, I, Cole is a great blog. If you're listening to the podcast, you probably know this. And you just wrote something about what's the 5-1 principle. Where 5-2. No, thank you. Yeah. The 5-2 principle. What is that? I have a good story for this. Tell me what the principle is. Okay, five two principle is it's it's called the five two curse. The five two curse. Yeah, and it's it's not my blog. It's the the newsletter. The, the newsletter, process. Honey copy. Uh, nope, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's the You're completely fucking up my plug here. It's called the process. Yeah, you can find it online. Let's just fuck all that. Anyways, mm -hmm. the five two principle is in tennis. When a player is up five to two in games, they let their foot off the gas. They right. start kind of pulling their swings. They think they got the win in the bag. And all of a sudden, the losing player sort of battles back and a lot of times can even win the set. So, right. And that's a metaphor for life, really. Yeah, and but creative yeah, yeah. work, everything. But tell me your story. Okay, so I was a couple weekends ago, buddy texted me on a Friday. And he's an events, he does events in hospitality. And he texted me and he said, I'm going to a horse race tonight or tomorrow in Saratoga. You want to come? I said, I'm not a horse racer, but sure, I'll come. Because he was producing, he is producing a horse race event and he wanted to go to this race in Saratoga to basically see what's up. And, but he's very into horse racing. So the next night, a friend of mine and him and myself get into a car. We drive to this horse race in Saratoga and we're at the track. We have amazing seats. Like we've been hooked up with hospitality. We're in this box. It's incredible. We're like right in front of the track. Like you can't get closer to the track, right at the finish line. So 
he we're we're placing bets, and I don't really bet. Shocker, but um, but I'm like I'm at the horse race in Saratoga. This is like one of the most famous horse tracks in the world. Like I'm gonna bet. So we figure out some money to put down, and we do a five leg parlay, or that's what it's called, right? What you bet? Okay, so we bet that we bet on like an, an, a series of outcomes to happen for a series of things, and if we won the bet, <laughs> we were <laughs> if we won the bet, we were gonna win like fifty thousand dollars. Like this, like crazy. So first race starts and we win and the second race starts and we win again. And I go and we're all like, holy cow, this is crazy. Like, like I I, think we'd win one of these third race goes and we win again. And I'm like, this is nuts. Fourth race goes. I mean, it's a five leg parlay, I think is what it's called. So fourth race goes and we need the number four or maybe as a number five horse to come in first and to win. So. The race starts and we are eyeing the number five horse. Like, like we're like, holy crap. And the horse is in like sixth and that's in fifth and that's in fourth and that's in sixth and that's in second and that's in first. And we're like, oh my God. And that's in second and first and second and third. And now it's back in first and it darts ahead 20 yards. The, the, the pack of horses is like back here. Our horse, number five, New York thunder is like 20 yards ahead of everyone else. About, 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 about to cross the finish line. We start hugging, high-fiving. We're like, this is insane. This horse has done it. This horse has done it for us. New York Thunder. Ten feet before the finish line. The horse falls down, collapses. Oh, my God. Throws the jockey. Jockey was fine. Was the horse okay? Was the horse good? let Let me tell you, Cole. No. <laughs> oh, man. That's The sad. horse gets up, and its leg is so clearly broken. I've never oh. seen anything like this in my life. The horse's leg is, is flopping like a towel. Oh, man. It's, it was the most – I'm laughing about it now to cope. Yeah. It was the most hideous, horrible thing oh. I have ever seen. People around us start crying. Now, this is what I didn't know. And I have a point here, I swear. This yeah. is what I didn't know because I'm not a horse racer. Do you know what happens when they break, when a horse breaks its leg? Yeah, they have to put it down, They man. put the horse down on the track. Yeah. It's horrible. So as we walked into the event, there were all these PETA protesters. And being incredibly ignorant about their cause, I was like, what are they, like, what are they doing like, this seems crazy. Did you, like, like make fun of them? Would you yes, know? we did. We were like, this seems cr- like, what are these people doing? Walking out, we were like, we should go join them. Like, what? now I got it. Like, horse racing is a dangerous thing. But the thing that screwed us up, because I want to say that, like, as crazy as this sounds, like, we all, the three of us, like, felt this, like, depression, like, all day. Oh, like, yeah. It was I insane. Mean, I'm, I'm depressed now. You're depressed just thinking about mm-hmm. it, right? That was my goal with the story, is to bring the mood down. But... The thing, like the difference, we kept saying this line, which I thought was so like interesting. That like the difference between literally what for this bet, we put a small amount of money down. If that horse had won, we were like we were one race away from literally winning fifty thousand dollars. Like it was crazy. The difference between fifty thousand dollars and that horse dying, we're so close, so closely thread together. And it's not a perfect analogy, but I read that and I was thinking about it because I was like, we were so close to winning and it all fell apart at the last second because this horse died. 
And it was it was it literally still haunts me to this day. How long ago was this? It was like two weeks ago. Ooh. So to this day, it still haunts me to this day. I guess it's only been a couple weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Damn man. That uh, that was a that's. I'm glad you told that story. That's, I'm glad you told that story. Yeah. I don't even know why I told that story, but I was thinking about the blog, and it made me think of that moment. Yeah. Well, moving on. Um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Do you write the blog? You The blog doesn't come out, or the email doesn't come out every day. It comes out but frequently. How often does it come out? It comes out. Anywhere from three to four days a week. Do you batch those together, or do you write them when you feel inspiration? Just as and then you fire it off. Mm-hmm, and like do you that. write it free, like will, and then do you like proofread it once or twice, and then do you just fire it, or like how how much do you labor over what you write? I mean, everyone writes and edits differently, but I generally generally will edit as I write. So I'll kind of like edit line by line, and then at the end I'll read it all the way through, and then you and send it, it out. Then I send it out. And who's your inspiration for, like, when you wrote this blog, was it like, because I think your tone, and I hope you take this as a compliment, your tone reminds me a little bit of Bob Lefsetz, of, like, the flow of it. Who, I, who is that? That's exactly what you would say if he was your biggest influence. And it was, oh, oh Bob? Oh, oh. He no, is, I really, I, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I probably um, sound ignorant. Okay, I don't Bob Lef, he's a music industry, see, you should subscribe to his newsletter because I think you would love it. He is a music industry reporter who's been writing this newsletter since like the 80s. And he used to, maybe not that long, but probably I think. And he fax, he used to fax it and now it's email. And it's just, it's not every day, but it's like whenever he has a thought, he'll like email his thoughts on whatever's happening in the, happening in the music industry. But it expands to culture and like other and politics and like Hollywood and other things that are happening. He just writes his take. But his tone is incredible. And it's so... Some people will listen to this and they'll be like, oh, I hate Bob Left. So it's like people in the music industry read him. Um, he's definitely a polarizing figure. Fun fact, the song Mean by Taylor Swift is about Bob Left. Because he was like one of the first people who supported her. And then he was like one of the first people who turns back to her and then starts saying like negative things or whatever. Um, but he's just been writing this newsletter forever and it's amazing. And it's like my favorite thing I read. You're, you're a pretty big Taylor Swift fan, aren't you? You're Swifty. No, I really yeah, wouldn't say so. You've, you've, I love uh, Fearless. You brought it up a few times this on this podcast. What was the other time I brought it up? Earlier, you said. I mean, you what almost. Did I say earlier, Roll you said tape. when she mentioned your hometown, and your eyes kind of like rolled back in your head. <laughs> what I so no, but I was listing songs about New York, so that that's different. But I wouldn't say I'm the biggest Swifty, but I definitely love Taylor, and um, I don't respect Taylor. I was at the Aris tour. Were you at the Aris tour? No, no, no. You're a, you're you're a, a Swifty. I'm a Swifty. Yeah, you are. I don't think I am though, because she's not my favorite. But I really respect the, uh, you know, I respect her. I hear that. I hear that. Yeah. I, I'm just saying, if you were to, like, if you were to bring up cornbread again in this podcast, You'd I would say, "Wow, I this would guy like you're he, the one bringing up cornbread." He's a big cornbread. Be, fan. This guy's very corny. Yeah. And anyhow, so you also mm. have toured with a band as a guitarist. Yeah. Which is crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember seeing some of that on Instagram and you, I mean, that's the only time I keep up with you unless it's like over nachos or right. something. Cause but we don't talk that often. Very rarely. To, very rarely. Very rarely. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And would, yeah. yeah, yeah. You like toured with a, with a band, but it was dope because you were also like running the Nashville briefing and yeah. uh, also doing that at the same time. There's first of all, people always said to me, like, how'd you tour and like still run the newsletter? 
And to me, it was like really easy because well, you don't drink. Well, I don't drink, and like people don't realize that like ninety five percent of the time that you're on the road, you're literally doing nothing. Like you're in a van. So I would like hotspot on my computer while we'd be driving for like five hours or six hours or whatever, and like do all my work. Um, and then you show up to sound check, you sound check, and then you have another couple hours of downtime where I would do more work, and then we'd play. And then sometimes I'd go out with everyone, but most of the time I'd like we'd play and then I'd go back to the hotel or whatever and do more work. So it's like there's plenty of downtime on the road. There's always that joke like they pay us to play or they pay us to travel. We play for free. Um, <laughs> but that is kind of a that's kind of a crazy story because I mean, I studied guitar performance in college. Um, um, but I graduated and then I was like, how am I ever going to make a living playing guitar? Like that's absurd. So it sort of took a back seat for me. I still would play a lot, but I wasn't really pursuing it professionally. And I was at a dinner with the two singers of this band Temecula Road and they've since broken up, um, on good terms. Um, the, uh, Emma was the singer, started dating a guy and moved to California. She's now actually pregnant. Um, and I think she just realized that, um, you know, it's super hard to be a musician, especially when you're on the rise and to be in yeah. events. Like, if you're not in it and it's not for you, then it's better to find out early than later or whatever. And she seems to be super happy. So it was the right decision. Um, but I was at a dinner with them and they're, they needed like a guitar player to fill in a date that was in two days. So they started texting all these guitar players. And I'm sitting at the dinner, like watching this happen. And I'm sort of like waiting for a moment to be like, like, should I like, should I like tell them, like, should I say I could do this? Like, should I do this? And oh, this I, one, I like, would have paid to, to watch you kind of like the wheels to watch this dinner. in my head. I'm sort of like, uh, and I was you like, probably, you probably did this. Sometimes when you think you'll do this, you'll be like, with the eyes. Am I supposed to look at the eyes? Is that what yeah, I'm, you'll be like this? You'll like be like, Yeah, maybe I was doing that. You yeah, were doing that for let me, sure. Let me try that out. Let me see if that feels right. Yeah, I think yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I was. You were definitely that. doing that yeah. at the dinner table. Um, so I said to them, I was like, I was like, guys, I could do this. I could play guitar. And um, and they were like, what? Like, do you even play guitar? And I was like, I was like, I could do this. And they were like, okay, if you go home and learn the set by tonight, you're in. So I left the dinner. It was like our friend Alex's birthday dinner. I just walked out of the dinner, went home learned guitar, like learned the parts, called them at like 2 a.m., played it down. I think the next day we were in a van traveling for six hours to Ohio, played in front of literally 10,000 people opening up for Gary Lavox on a 4th of July fair or whatever. And there's always that joke that I love, which is like five rehearsals, tons of stress, no fun, play the gig, three people show up. No rehearsal, no stress, tons of fun playing in an arena. You're playing in a stadium. And like weirdly, that's how it always works out. Like always the high profile gigs, it's like you just show up and you do it. Like I subbed uh, Wicked last year on Broadway. I made my Broadway debut in the pit of Wicked in New York. Like there's no rehearsal for that. And like, the pits, for people who don't know, the pit is where the, where the band is. Where the band is and you're playing. So I played guitar in the pit with the orchestra yeah. basically. There's no rehearsal for that. Like I showed up, sat in the pit, played the thing. I did the same thing. I did an off-Broadway play or musical this summer. I did a bunch of dates subbing for it. The first date, I showed up, played it. 
was acoustic guitar, piano, and an actor. It was like a one or actress. It was like a one actress show called Walking with Bubbles. And I just showed up and played it. And then some friends of mine were there. And afterwards, they were like, that was amazing. Like, did you guys rehearse? I was like, no, no, no. When you heard us play it, that was the first time we played it. Like, that's that's what happened with this gig with Temecula Road. So show up, play the gig. And we get home. I was like, okay, that was fun, guys. Like, really fun. Thanks for bringing me out. But, like, I'm running a business. Like, I'm not going to be your guitar player. But that was really fun. And they go, oh, but we're playing Whiskey Jam on Monday. Like, can you, uh, like, would you be able to fill in for Whiskey Jam on Monday? And I was like, yeah, well, like, that's in town, three songs. Like, I, I already know the songs. I don't feel learn them. It's a low commitment, so I'll do that. And then they were like, oh, we're doing, like, a three-show West Coast weekend run opening up for Jesse James Decker. We're doing these great theaters. Like, you want to come out and do that? And I was like, well, I have the weekend free. And that sounds kind of fun. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I could do that. But then, then that's it. Like, then I'm done. Went out and did that. And then it was just like one show after another. And I started getting on tours and like doing commitments to tours. And uh, it was just really fun. It was a blast. Um, and we did like arenas. We did amphitheaters. We did theaters, clubs, headline shows, support shows, hometown shows in their hometown. Like, it was so fun. It was great. And we became really tight with everyone in that band. And yeah, and sadly, we're not touring right now. But Dawson, who's the, who was the other singer, he's got a solo career that he's doing. We actually were playing Whiskey Jam. We're doing a national briefing Whiskey Jam takeover next month. And we'll play with him there. How much better is a session guitarist from maybe a really competent guitarist that is playing in a band and in, in tours or whatever? Because I feel like most of the time... And correct me if I'm wrong, the touring guitarist isn't always the guitarist that's used in the actual session. Pretty much always. And or at least in country music, but also I feel like in other genres. Um, really the thing is like, I think guitar playing is one of those things where you really get better the more you play. Like you're peaking get playing guitar. If you're really like a studious guitar player and constantly pushing your ability. It's not like you're an athlete and it's in your 20s or 30s. You can be hitting your prime at like 50. Or 60 or 100%. Yeah. So the best guitar players in town are the people who are like a little bit older. And now some of the hot shots like Derek Wells or um, Uncle Larry, like Tom Bukovac, um, who everyone calls Uncle Larry. Like these guys maybe aren't that old, but they're probably in their like mid 50s or whatever. Um, And I, and, uh, uh, not Tom, uh, Derek Wells was just out playing with Hardy. I saw, so they still sometimes get out and play on the road, but in a cliche way of like stereotypically speaking, not even referencing those guys particularly, but the best guitar players that you want playing on your records might not be the best people that you want to bring out on the road for a million reasons, because maybe they're a little bit older and you're a little younger. So visually it wouldn't be the right vibe, or maybe they just don't want to be on the road because they have families and they're settled down or whatever, or maybe like, you know, there's a million reasons. So I'm so inferior to those guys who are like the top session players. But the other thing is when you're live, there's this energy where you can, there's a little more room for forgiveness. And I'm like a competent guitar player, but I'm aware of that fact is like, if you're bending a note live and it's a little flat or a little sharp, or your time is like a little bit, not perfect. You can kind of get away with it live because there's this energy of the show with lights and community and all these things that distract a little bit from it. And like, there's moments on both sides of the fence where I'll be at a show and be like, Oh my God, that was the best sounding show ever. 
and then I'll listen to a recording of the show I was at. I'll be like, oh, that didn't sound as tight as I thought it did. Or vice versa, where I'll be playing. I'll be like, oh, I sound amazing right now. And then I listen back to a recording. I was like, oh, that did not sound as hot as I thought it did. But when you're in the studio, like you're recording on stuff that is going to live forever. And also someone's going to listen to intimately and and like with headphones, they're going to hear every little detail without any distractions. So I talk about this all the time with buddies of mine who are guitar players, which is like your session career could be ruined if you're just a little bit out of tune. And if you're a little bit out of tune live, that's called sounding like Keith Richards. Like that kind of works. That's a vibe. But like in a in a recording, like you've got to nail that stuff. So I'm always very intimidated about being a session player. Like I don't do a ton of session work probably because there's like better people to call who really do this. And the other thing is like, I'm sort of very self-aware of where I am as a guitar player, which is I studied guitar in college and I do feel like I can prep for a gig and kind of play like any kind of gig that's contemporary music. But there are people who play guitar for hours and hours and hours every single day. And those guys are a step up above me. I mean, they have to be because they play so much more than I do. So those are the guys you should get playing on your recordings. But I always think that when I play live, to me, it's like the sound is I will always put secondary to a little bit secondary. And you still have to sound great. So it's all relative. But I would rather sound, you know, relatively a little bit worse, but look sick and put on a great show where you're like, incorpor- no, but I really mean this. Like, where I'm incorporating with the crowd or like interacting with other people on stage or like running around or like I did this thing on one of the last shows we played where I just like collapsed and started playing on the floor and was like wailing my feet and like everyone came up to me and was like that was hilarious when you did that like that was awesome but that's a bad example like I just feel like when you go to a show even when I go to a show unless I'm seeing something where it's all about the music like if you're seeing like a classical orchestra or something but it's like I want to see someone perform and put on a show and I will give them a little bit of grace, a little bit like it's relative. I still want someone to sound really good, but I will give them a little bit of grace on how they sound. If they're really putting something in the, into the performance and the visual element of it, because like that's why I'm there. I want to see something visual happen. So and those are my favorite bands, too, are the ones that like run around stage and kind of give you something to look at or put some like give you some oh, yeah. visuals. So. I think that that mentality that I have, which is like, I'm here to put on a show or be part of a show. Cause really when you're a sideman, it's not about you. You know, you're trying to contribute to the artist and the bigger picture of the show that's happening, but you're contributing to it. I would rather focus on putting on a little bit of a bear show all around than like standing in the back with my head down and like focusing entirely on making sure I'm like playing guitar hundred percent. Perfect. Technically sound. Technically yeah. sound to me. I don't think that's as important as like, Hey, I'm trying to, you know, present that we're having a fun time up here and hopefully you can have a fun time with us. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I think that there is something to be said for, I mean, when I go to see a live show, I'm, I'm wanting to get a great performance. You know, I saw, uh, what does that mean to you sonically? Or no, literally or what both? you just said. I mean, yeah. I just, I want to feel like the energy from the artist. I mean, I remember I saw cage the elephant at, at uh forecastle in, uh, Louisville. Did I get, is that what the festival is called? I don't uh, know. Yeah. Forecastle. Yeah. And have you ever seen cage live? Saw them once at pilgrimage maybe, but they're, they're rowdy. It's fucking nuts, they're man. Nuts, yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. But that to me is, is kind of what I want. I don't necessarily care if it's perfect, you know, from a music standpoint. No, you, know? you don't care. And you don't yeah. even know what 
perfect is. Well, here's, here's another question is, you know, I've heard that um, some of the most loved songs have quite a few imperfections within the recordings. I don't know if you've ever, have you, yeah. have you ever heard that? I mean, one example I can think of is Leonard Cohen's famous Blue Raincoat. Have you heard that song? Yeah, but what's the imperfection? I just, I think like maybe it's his voice. I don't know what it is exactly, but I mean, he doesn't have a great voice, but there's yeah. something believable about the way he sings or the that's way he's sung. That's my favorite. Uh, that's like the best. Whenever someone screws up at a concert, it's like my, it's like my, the favorite time I see that artist live is when they. But do you think there's room for up. that in, in recorded sessions? Or do you want like your, do you want what ends up on the record to be so perfect from a musical standpoint? Really depends because it, it depends who the artist is. It's like so different. Um, like I think of great rock records like Rolling Stones. If you listen to those Rolling Stones records, especially the early ones, like they're so sloppy, but that's kind of what makes them great. Is like yeah. they're so, you can hear them sort of like, fretting out notes at times and tripping over the guitars, but like, that's what I love about it. And it Same. also gives this attitude of like, they just didn't care, but they, but in the best way, or it's not that they didn't care. It wasn't about being perfect. It was just about trying to get this energy across that they loved. You know, it was trying to get an attitude across or an energy across, but then you listen to other records that are perfect. And I marvel over how perfect they sound. Like queen is a good example of that, right? Yes. Like, like maybe there's some hidden mistake in Bohemian Rhapsody, but I don't but know. I what can't it is. find it. Yeah. I can't yeah. find it. That yeah. thing sounds so perfect. And don't you love about that? Like if that sounded like the Rolling Stones, you'd be like, oh, this is a train wreck. Like that's what's so great about it. It's perfect. So it just depends on what you're trying to do with them mm -hmm. in the context of what you're trying to get across. Have you heard the album Progress by Jared Kay? No. You look it up. It's like one of my like favorite albums. Now? Me, like, you, no, like I think you. I think you. I am. I think you'd really dig <laughs> it. But in one of the songs, you can actually hear the piano bench like squeaking and shit. Oh yeah, isn't during, that great? Yeah, like, I fucking love that. You know, and yeah. I know it's not perfect necessarily, but that's the small stuff I like. But moving away from music, you run a really dope podcast, uh, also a newsletter. I feel like you're kind of. Uh, King might be stroking your ego a little too much, but you know, Media viral, mogul, uh, maybe, maybe a jester. Or, a jester yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely not media mogul. Media jester. But you, you know how to like. It's <laughs> good because I've been trying to come up with a name. My friend always jokes like I'm a big Howard Stern fan, who's the king of all media. My friend always jokes like you're you're the prince of all media. Like oh, I'll call like, you the poem, the prince the of poem. all media, or the squire, or the squire of yeah. all media. But the jack of all media. That sounds. There's something kind of jester, fun about jester, jester of all media, the jester of all media. But no, you, you you know you you have some interesting stunts. Like tell me about the 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 garbage can thing. Well, this is kind of okay. Well, this can I tell the first stunt? The first stunt that I ever did was I was approaching the hundredth episode of my podcast. Okay. And, you know, I was a big Bobby Bones fan. I still am a big Bobby Bones fan. I was a big Bobby Bones fan uh, when I was in college because I was I was like wanting to move to Nashville and Bobby Bones was someone who I really admired because he was like a talk show radio host. I kind of was into that, but he was like a window into country music. So I would listen to him all the time. So on the hundredth episode of the Bobby Bones podcast, he says, you're not a real podcast until you hit a hundred episodes. So I come up with this idea that, I'm approaching my 100th episode. I'm going to get Bobby Bones on the podcast, and he's going to make my show a real podcast. So I had this whole campaign 
So I started just going live on Instagram saying like, tag Bobby Bones. He's going to come on the show. He's going to, we're going to make it a real podcast. And, uh, and p- people tagged him and nothing happened. So then I said, we need to up the ante. So I then did a live reading of his children's book. He wrote this children's book. And I did a live reading of the children's book on Instagram. I was like reading the book until he comes on the podcast. Tons of people tagged him. Nothing happened. So then I said, okay, raising the ante again. I bought a cameo from Carly Pierce where she says in the cameo, Bobby, Zach wants you to come on the podcast. I think you should do it. Nothing happens. That cost me like 30 bucks. Then I go, oh, I don't know if this is working publicly. All my friends are seeing me do this. I don't want to fail, but I'm not getting his attention. And a really great mentor of mine said to me, and she was like so well-meaning, but she said to me, she was like, I think you should stop. Like, I don't think this is a good look. It looks kind of eager. Like, it looks kind of desperate. And like Bobby Bones, like, I don't know, like he's such a controversial figure. And I was like, no, 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 like I'm going to do this. So, and actually I didn't feel that way. Like I was really nervous, but I pulled this last time, which was I bought a billboard in the middle of Nashville uh, where I like, where I asked him to come on the show, took a photo, saw the billboard. Two days later, I was in a studio doing the podcast. The other thing about this to bring it back to the five, two principle is sometimes you see that thing of like, there's sometimes that meme where you see someone like hacking away at gold and they turn around like right when they were like one hack away from hitting gold. I sometimes I think about that in that moment where it was like, Oh my God, like I was so close to not pulling it off. Like if I had done that last stunt, like it wouldn't, it never would have happened. Like it wouldn't be a thing. It was like that last thing, like sometimes that last push or just when you think you should go home, it's like that last bit was like what you need, like what sealed the deal. And I was, I was really thinking about not doing it because I was like, this is crazy. So did the interview and it was great. You should go listen to it if you if you can find my podcast, Shameless Plug, the Zach Hune Show. It's the hundredth episode, and it's one of my favorite podcast interviews I've ever done. It was so I like great. I like that example of the five two principle a lot more than you talking about the horse blowing out its fucking leg, man. <laughs> and dying. Yeah, you can go find Jesus. video of that too, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, so, <laughs> oh man. so we, so cut comes on the show, we do it and it's great. And you should, you should go listen to it. Yeah. But, but I think yeah. in, in, in not to interrupt, but I loved that example about how you got someone on the show. A flip side of it is you also did that for, uh, another guest well, this and is it didn't go say. so well. So I had this idea that I was going to do this for another guest. Tell that story. And, and so there's a producer. I'm just going to say it because secretly I hope that if I keep talking about it, I think you should keep talking mind, about it. Man, maybe it. he comes on. So everyone always says I look like Jack Antonoff. And it's fine. Cause I think I maybe look a little bit like him. Like we'd be cousins or maybe it's cause we're like both Jewish. Like, I don't know. Or we both wear glasses. Like, but everyone says I look like Jack Antonoff to the point where like multiple people that I've matched with on Raya Shameless plug for Raya. Their opening line, their open, and I'm single, ladies. Their opening line to me is, do you know you look like Jack? Like, maybe like three times people have opened a conversation on Raya with, do you know you look just like Jack Antonoff? And I'm like, oh my God. We were at a dinner with two of my friends. Not we. I was, this is about yeah, me. I was, I was at a dinner with like three of my friends and the waiter came up to me and he was like, are you Jack Antonoff? And I was like, oh, and both my friends immediately go, yeah, like he doesn't like to talk about, but like he is. This dude asked for my photo. He was like, I'm, and 
it was the thing where he was not kidding. He was literally like, hey, like, I'm like really nervous to do this, but my sister's a huge Taylor Swift fan. That's four. And can I take a photo like of you to show her? And I was like, yeah, like, okay. And we took this photo. This dude like thinks he's a photo jacking off in his phone, except I really hope he showed it to his sister. And the sister was like, that's not jacking. <laughs> point of the story. Here's the point. Cut all that out. Just, just for flow. The point of the story is Do everyone you want us to says, keep the Raya plug. Keep the Raya okay, plug. Okay. Right. You can keep all those. I don't right, care. I'm on. just trying to help the podcast flow a little bit. Yeah. Point of the story is everyone always says I look like Jack Anoff. So I had this idea that I'd pull another stunt where I would recreate these photos of Jack Antonoff from his album covers, from the Bleachers album covers. So I wrangled a photographer and I have someone on my team whose name is Blair Miller. Shout out to Blair Miller. And we, 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 like point for point recreate the photos of these album covers. And you have to go look at them on my Instagram, Zach Kuhn official. Oh, I've seen them. I've seen you them. Ha- if you're, you had to, you have to scroll down a little bit, but you'll find them. And I had a, I had a friend of mine create this jacket that he wears like piece for piece, like everything we recreate, like they're, they're so good. They're, they're humbly incredible. Like they're so good. And we started posting them. And the thing was like posting photos of Jack Antonoff until he comes onto my podcast and we're posting, 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 and like nothing. So finally, a buddy of I meet someone who says, you know, I can get you in touch with somebody who can who's like in the camp, like on the team. And I go, great. So I end up going to this person's office and we have we really hit it off, which was what was funny. And basically we actually became kind of friendly, but he said to me, he was like, Look, this is kind of funny, but he's not gonna do the podcast. He's like, it's not going to happen. Like you should, and you should probably stop. Like he just is, it's not going to happen. And it would, and I was really bummed. And I talked about this. I just did an episode of my podcast recently with Seth Go and I talked about this on the podcast and it was like really hard because one of the things that really bummed me out was I feel like I let the team down. Like I had, I had a team, I had a photographer and someone who made a jacket. I had this person, my Blair, who was like orchestrating all this and helping put the shots together and doing so much behind the scenes stuff, like even though it sounds like a joke because it was like all oh, these photos, like we put a lot of work into this. And I felt like I let the team down. Like, like we were all trying to pull something off and we didn't pull it off. So that really, that was like the thing that bummed me out the most about it. Um, but did you pay the team? Yes, but not, then you, not then you didn't let them down. We didn't let them down. You're right. But I still feel like I, I paid them very, like they really gave me a good rate. Yeah. Like it was a cheap shoot. I think maybe I spent a couple hundred dollars on the whole thing. Like it was okay. so okay. cheap. And also I just wanted to win because like, you're right. Like, I don't feel like I screwed anyone over, but I just think it would have been fun. It would have been a big win. It would have been a big win for yeah. everyone. Right. So that to me was the biggest bummer, but I talked about this on Seth Goins podcast. And I think we talked about one of the things where, you know, these stunts are really, they're kind of marketing stunts. Like when I did the Bobby bones thing, it was like a marketing play. Like everyone started talking about it and like people would come to me and they'd say, you're never going to guess this, but I heard so-and-so talking about you at lunch. And like, it was like for a couple days, it was like everyone was talking about this thing. So it was kind of a stunt. And I was hoping that that would happen with the Jack Anoff thing. I think it did. Like, I think people started talking about it, but really these things are marketing things to try to market the show. Like when I really think about what they are, that's what they are. But I hope that at the same time that the person on the receiving end is almost like flattered by it and sees my dedication to wanting to having a very genuine conversation with them. Like I think Bobby 
at first Bobby thought I was like making fun of him. And they realized that like, really, this is like, I like, I really want to have a conversation with you. Cause I think we could have a cool conversation. And I'm also going to give you a great interview. Like I'm like, I spend so much time prepping for my podcast. Like it would freak you out if you knew the hours I spent like listening to interviews or reading interviews or going deep, like Jeremy over here, like both of you guys were like going deep too. Like it takes so much work. So it's like, I hope that that comes across that like, I'm not trying to waste your time. And I also do have a little bit of a platform. So it's like, I'm trying to have everyone win and do a conversation. Jack doesn't do a ton of interviews. And I feel like we could have a great interview. And I have so many questions for Jack that now have piled up. Well, and yeah, and because I listened to that podcast in research for this and, and Seth Godin said, I think his advice to you was that he felt it wasn't very generous or it wasn't, or it wasn't generous because he wasn't in on the joke or yes, something like that's that. What, and I think it was a good point. And I, which I agree with to an extent. I also disagree a little bit in that. I do I think, too. I think if you're going to do it, you have to go all the way in. You have to kind of become known as the guy that I'm willing that to do whatever it takes to get a guest on my podcast. But you can't be that guy like 10% of the time because then it's like corny. So you know what made me nervous about this? Because I had this thought too. But I also think you could be known as the guy who like once a year pulls a big stunt. And I think it could even – And I does mean, it. I think it could be cool too for your career because, I mean, I think just marketing and music in general is very bland most of the time. That's how know? I feel. So I feel like this is outrageous. But you know what the honest truth is? Is – and maybe that – the getting rejected from that stunt kind of like gave me some post-traumatic stress or whatever. The honest truth is I haven't had an idea for a stunt. If I had, if I had a great idea for another podcast guest stunt, I'd probably just go do it, but I haven't had a great idea. And I also don't know. I've had so many people on my guest or on my show, really fortunate to have like so many legendary people on my show that I'm not really sure like who I want. Like I'm trying to think of who else I want where it like makes sense. Like there was something, there was a tie-in with Bobby in the 100th episode. with Jack, everyone always says, I look like him. Like, I think it's fun if there's like a tie-in to something where there's like a purpose or it makes sense. And I haven't really thought of a perfect, of another stunt. If I thought of one, I would do it. Yeah. Well, and, and that that goes into like quality versus- How'd you get me on this? Would you pull any stunts to get me on this? On here? Yeah. I think I just texted you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's why I should try. Offered just to, Offered to buy you cornbread. <laughs> but- uh you know, that brings the quality versus quantity subject into the conversation. That was also something you talked about on the Seth Godin podcast, or I guess he was on your podcast. Yeah. But um, I don't know if you asked him or he asked you, but like this idea of quality versus quantity, I feel like you put out a crazy amount of content. This is something too that's really been on my mind is this yeah. question and thinking a lot about it because we because I brought up to Seth with the example of, there was a podcast episode recently that I felt was below my quality line, but that I wanted to release it because I felt that I have this, I feel like I have this commitment to my audience, which is to be consistent and to have quantity. And we had a really good part of our conversation. We spent talking about this principle. I don't even know if it's a principle, but just these two things wrestle with each other. These two ideas of like, can you be really consistent and have people rely on your content and be a professional, which is you show up for work, even when you don't feel up for it or when you feel like maybe today's not my day or I have a headache or whatever, you're still showing up. This is what Seth says is the definition of a professional. Um, and that's, you know, what gets you allow, allows you to do this work professionally. But sometimes that means you're sacrificing 
your quality because not everyone's perfect for 52 episodes a year if you're doing an episode a week. So this is something that I've really thought about a lot because I've done over 130 something podcast episodes every single Tuesday for a couple of years now and I've never missed. And this right now, you're talking to me the only time when I'm taking a couple weeks off from the podcast because I kind of felt like, am I missing the point where am I like by being on this treadmill of every week, hour long interview, boom, 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 years of doing this. Am I missing the point or like, is there something I could restructure? Or could I do something differently? Or if I took a couple weeks off, would I have, would I bring a different appreciation for it? I'm going to start again. In fact, my next interview is already booked for next week. I've got a great interview booked. I'm super excited for do it to do it. And once I start again, I'll probably start again, but it gave me pause to think about like, is, is the point that I should be putting out episodes every single week? Or is the point that the episodes I put out, should they be like, game-changing, fucking incredible conversations that really speak to me. And I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. And we live in a tough time with media because the thing with media is everyone's always like quantity, like TikTok, three posts a day. That's how you go viral on TikTok. And that's probably true. But I just don't know if, to me, I'm interested in, is there something more long-lasting that I can do? And I look at podcasts like How I Built This by Guy Raz. You ever listen to that podcast? It's a good one. So good and so produced and like thoughtful. And I listen to episodes of that show that are like five years older. Like I'll go back and listen. They sound great. Right. So and there's other examples too. mystery show was the one that he brought up, which I had never heard until Seth brought it up on the podcast. And I listened to it. I was like, oh, my God. Like if you've never listened to mystery show, the podcast, there's like five episodes and it's the best podcast like of all time. And there's an episode about belt buckle that Seth brought up on the podcast and it's the best podcast episode of all time. Like it's unbelievable. So, you know, there's also a great line that I love in the movie. I think the movie is Ford versus Ferrari, but there's a great line where one, they're in a boardroom at Ford where they're talking about how they should market Ford. And one of the guys pitches this, this idea, which is he goes, we should win like Le Mans or the big race, you know, Ferrari's going to go and they're going to win. We should go and win. And the head of Ford says, well, we care what Ferrari does. Like, you know, we make more cars in a week than Ferrari does in a year. Like, what do we care about Ferrari? And the guy who's pitching it says, Enzo Ferrari is going to go down as the greatest car maker in history. And why? Because he made more cars than everyone else. And I always think about that line. It's like a great line. It's like, Am I going to go down as the best podcaster in history because I put out more podcasts than Joe Rogan? Like, no. Like, if I go down with any mark in podcasting history, I think it's probably going to be because the conversations were a little bit more thoughtful or researched or interesting or intriguing, and the quantity of them might not be as relevant if the quality is really high. So I'm kind of thinking about it right now because the other thing is I also love the practice of doing a podcast and showing up every week to talk to someone that I maybe don't know or to have these conversations and do this. Like this is a practice that I really enjoy doing every week. And to me, it's funny how like Rick Rubin talks about this in his book where it's like, we don't make art for the fans. Actually, we actually make it for ourselves and we hope that there's an audience for it, I guess. But if we're not enjoying the creation process and if it's not doing, if we're not doing what we feel like we have to get out, like that might not be the most authentic art so for me, it's like showing up, having these conversations. Like I love doing it. And I always tell people, like people will say, oh, I'm so sorry. I missed last week's episode of the podcast. I didn't listen yet. And I'm like, 
And I always say like, totally fine. Like I actually don't do this podcast for you, which is crazy. Like I don't do it for the audience. I hope the audience listens and gets something out of it. But I would guess that I think are interesting. I have turned down big guests that I have no interest in talking to genuinely because I'm like, I'm going to spend so much time reaching. Like I'm just not interested and it's like not worth it to me. So I really do the podcast for myself more so than the listeners, but I still think there's something very rewarding about doing an episode they're really proud of or playing with the format or whatever. And now I am rambling, but no, I think, I think I, I'm glad you shared all that. And I think that the quality versus quantity subject is something all creatives have to think about. And, and one I think about a lot is uh, like Frank Ocean. I mean, his last album was blonde, which I think that came out in 2016, I think, or maybe 2017. And I mean, it's still such a relevant album to culture. And I feel like artists a lot of times are a great, I mean, except for, I mean, you have artists like Drake who put out a fucking album every single year, but I think there's, yeah, and do you think that takes away from the I individual so. album being iconic? I think like, so. And I'm a, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a Drake fan, but I mean, there's, there's a lot of his music as of late where I'm like, bro, it feels like you're just like kind of putting in a rep here, you know, yeah. versus like trying to put something out that is genuinely great or at least trying to be great. Um, so I, and, and I also see it like in social media culture too, where it's like everything is quantity based. I mean, I, I got on that fucking like hamster wheel a while back where I was trying to like stay up with like Twitter, LinkedIn. And I felt like some of the shit I was putting out there was pretty decent, but then I'd get to like the end of the week and my mental health fucking sucked. Cause I was like, just my dopamine was all gone. Cause I was constantly just trying That's to keep up with the too. algorithm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, fuck that. Like, I'm going to, start something like this where I have meaningful conversations with people. And so, yeah, sometimes they're going to be better than others, but at least it like fills my cup at the end of most podcasts. I think it's Tim Ferriss's podcast. He has like rapid fire questions, which I, I've always thought are okay, but I wanted to kind of add like a little bit more flair to it. So you're going to light the yeah. match and you have the time it takes for that flame to reach your finger to answer the question I ask you. <laughs> All right, ask, ask me like, no, I'll play your game. All right. Ask me. The, no, uh, light it, then I'll ask you the question. Oh, I light it, then you ask me the question. Yes, yes. Is it a quick question? Because I don't want to lose valuable Oh, no, I mean, time. these are the rules, man. You, you're, you have to play by the rules. Wow. There we go. Let's let that burn down a little bit. All right. So here's the question. Um, what, what makes a great pancake? Oh, because I'm a big pancake guy. So I I don't like I feel differently about pancakes than other people do. I don't like spongy pancakes. I like pancakes that are a little more cakey. I love bananas and pancakes, even though when I make them, I don't put them in because I go plain. It's a control. But I love pancakes. And the real secret is you do not want Aunt Jemima or any of that fake syrup. You want a real Vermont maple syrup from Vermont. Canada's maple syrup is fine too, but you want real maple syrup, none of that fake shit. That was really good. That was solid. All right, uh, next match. Where do I put this? Uh, in the ashtray right there. How many people have played this game? A lot, uh, a lot more, actually, like four or five people. And believe it or not, no one has had as much difficulty understanding the rules. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Anyways, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Um, all right, go ahead and light it. Here we go. Let's let it burn a little bit. All right, so uh, why did you name your company 
backboard <clears throat> entertainment. Oh shit, this is a great story and I've got a burning match. Here's the story. I was studying for finals at Berkeley College of Music uh, in a like a study room. I was with a buddy of mine and it was the last week senior year. And I said to him, wouldn't it be funny if we got a plaque that said we donated this college or this room to the college? Hilarious. So we started ordering a plaque and I said to him, I, <laughs> I, and I said to him, we can't use our own names because then they're going to know it was us. So we had to come with a fake company name. So we brainstormed, brainstormed, brainstormed. I said, how about backboard entertainment? He said, great. Bought the plaque, hung it up. I had to make an LLC. I then said, I'll call it backboard entertainment. Boom. Great. Great. Okay. Great story. By the way, I went back to the college a couple months ago. The plaque is still up. (laughs) It's been like five years. All right. Third question. Light it. Is he always this bossy? He's always this bossy, right? Strictly with you. Unbelievable. All right. So you, you have a few actors that played in Wizard of Oz from your hometown. I don't know if you're aware That's of That's true, yeah. Yeah. That is true. And the guy who wrote it. Is, yeah. Yeah. Which is insane. Yeah. Yeah, but That's which, which Wizard of Oz character do you most relate to and why? Oh, fuck. Um, like the wizard smoking mirrors? No. Um, I like Toto. No, I don't know. Oh, the, my God. The dog? Yeah, I want it. <laughs> Wait, that's a great question. I blew it. Do I? Do we light another no, match? No, 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 no. No one's that's, ever going to know. No one, no one gets to know now. I don't. That's a great question. But I feel like, you know, the problem is I feel like all those characters are horrible. Dorothy runs away from home. Is that the story of the Wizard of Oz? No, you say Dorothy? Dorothy. Okay, I thought you said Dorothy. Oh. Dorothy? What did I say? You said check, Dorothy. Check the tapes. Dorothy, yeah. That's a... Uh, oh, God, I don't even know. All right, think on it. We're going to have you back. Part two. Part I get the invite back. Yeah, I think you get the invite back. You've How did I do compared to Sean Brock? Was incredibly than entertaining. Sean Brock. Sean Brock was Uh-oh. more fascinating. <laughs> um, and I wasn't fascinated? and insightful and educational. I would I wasn't, say I wasn't any of those things. And he might even have you in entertaining, but you were. What did I bring? No, I'm just fucking. I brought with you. the matches. You, I, w- I would say you might have him in an entertaining. You're like a wildly entertaining person. It's something I admire about you. Oh, okay, I'll take that. But anyways, we gotta we gotta get you have a you have a lunch. I got lunch. You're I didn't kind, cancel this lunch. Yeah, I know. You gotta make it to your lunch. Yeah. Uh, we get all of our guests a gift. No, you didn't. To say thank is it you. Cereal? What is it? It's not cereal. Is it the Topo Chico box? Um, and we no, it isn't. Got you something no, just you to uh, as a nod. To your, to your LLC. It's a backboard. Oh my God, this is so good. We don't have a backboard. Yeah, now you have one, man. Did you have this lying around the house or did, did you order no, this? No, we, we went, went out and fucking bought it. We even have a basketball for you, but I think we ought to blow it up. Give me the basketball. This is going to go in my apartment. It's not blown up. <laughs> Throw that to him. What do, what do I do with that? Look I, at it. I have a, Hang a, on, wait, a wait. car. Oh! <laughs> Zach Kuhn, everyone. <laughs> Cut it. Full baby. Wrap well, it. Folks, That's a wrap. That wraps up another thrilling edition of Dreamland. Cole Schaefer and his team of creative misfits work their darn tails off each week to make this show possible. How do you compare your group with the Beatles? I don't know. How do you compare with the Beatles? I, I don't compare it at all. You know, there's no point. Well,
Well, let's get right down to brass tacks. Do you think you're better than they are? Oh, oh what? You know, it's, it's, it's not the same group, so we just do what we want and they do what they want. And there's no point in going on comparing us. You can prefer us to them or them to us. Mm. It's just diplomatic, you see. Very diplomatic.